The children are dismissed at this time for Children's Church. And as they're finding their way out, I'll invite you to find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Kind of near the middle of your Bible, sort of, in the Old Testament. All right. How's everybody feeling? Are y'all excited? Starting a new book? Isaiah? I was listening to something this week about Isaiah, how to, how to preach and teach Isaiah was actually the, uh, the title of it. And you won't believe what the, the guy said about Isaiah. He said, I'm not making this up, it is the Romans of the Old Testament. Now, some of you may not appreciate that as much as others. Um, Romans was one of the first books that I preached through, and I preached sequentially through it. It took very few breaks, and it took us almost two and a half years. The good news is Isaiah is only 50 chapters longer than Romans was. <laughs> Romans was 16 chapters. Isaiah is 66 chapters. Um, I'm not going to go through it as rigidly as we did Romans, we'll take breaks, we'll come back to it, but we, we will, Lord willing, see our way all the way through this awesome book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. This morning, I'm only going to preach one verse, but I promise that's not the pace that I'm going to go throughout these 66 chapters. I'm preaching just Isaiah 1-1 this morning because I think we need to prepare ourselves before we wade all the way into the depth of Isaiah together. And this is going to help us just to think about this first verse because we've never tackled a book like this one before. I have preached passages from Isaiah, but we've never moved through a book like this book before together. So we need to prepare ourselves. And so I'm just going to preach one verse and I'm just going to tell you two things about the book of Isaiah from this one verse. And that should help get us prepared to really dive deeply into it next Sunday on the 9th. So let me read the verse to you at first. So this is Isaiah 1-1, the beginning of the book. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, now you guys are excited, now that you've gotten a taste of what we have before us. So the first thing I want to tell you about Isaiah to, to prepare us is that it is a specific type of book. Okay, it's a very specific type of book. Looking back at the first part of this verse, Isaiah's umbrella statement to explain what these 66 chapters are going to be, he says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. So this language, the vision of Isaiah, sets this book apart automatically as a book of prophecy. That's the sort of technical genre term for what this book is. It's a book of prophecy. Now, that's important to know because anytime you're reading anything, it's really helpful to know what kind of thing it is so you know how to understand it and what to do with it. So you wouldn't read a mystery novel the same way you would read a biography, and you wouldn't read a biography the same way you would read a collection of poems. And you wouldn't read a collection of poems the same way you would read an email from a colleague. So it's good to know, what am I reading before we start trying to understand it? 
what are we reading here? It's a book of prophecy. Now, if that verse 1 didn't excite you enough, wait till you see what I'm going to show you next. In your Bibles, flip to the table of contents. I'm going to give you a second. I want you actually to look at, at your table of contents and see all the books of the Bible lined up in, in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you. It would be very near the front, some of the very first pages in your Bibles. It'll say contents or something like that. And you'll see two big sections, Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible is one book, but it's made up of a bunch of books, a bunch of different kinds of books. Let's look at the Old Testament bit for just a minute. So it starts with Genesis, and if you'll trace all the way down to Esther, all those books, generally speaking, are history books. You read those pretty much like history. Um, There's a little more nuance to it than that, but generally speaking, that's how you approach those books, from Genesis through uh, Esther. And then the next book in the Old Testament is Job. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon— That batch of books are known as wisdom literature. So they're all very unique from one another, but they basically convey wisdom to God's people. Then comes Isaiah, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. Guess what kinds of books all those books are? Yeah, those are all prophetic books like Isaiah. So there's a huge batch of books of the Bible that are prophetic. So learning how to read a prophetic book is going to help us beyond just you guys being able to hang with me in Isaiah. It's going to help you read your Bibles as well. So this groundwork is going to be worth it, I promise. Okay, thanks for reading your table of contents with me. I told you this is going to be exciting. So Isaiah introduces it back in verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. So you're probably picturing Isaiah in some sort of a trance-like state, and he's seeing all these visuals that he's going to try to describe. Now, there are some visuals described, but really this language would have been understood by those folks as a verbal message that God revealed. So Isaiah is, is delivering a verbal message from God to God's people. That's what prophecy is. That's what a prophet did in the Old Testament. I think many people, when they think of a prophet think of someone who predicts the future. But that's not really the best way to understand a prophet like Isaiah. It's better to understand him as a messenger from God, just not particularly insightful about the future and of himself, just God handed him a message and said, take this to my people, and then takes that message to God's people at a particular point in time and explains it to them. That's what a prophet does. One way to understand a prophet uh, in my studies, and I think this is helpful, is as a covenant enforcement officer. So we have police officers that enforce our laws. Prophets were sort of like enforcement officers for God's people in their covenants back then. So God is always related to his people in covenants. Covenants are formal relationships between two parties, and there's rules We call them law. When you think of the Ten Commandments, those are part of the rules for God's covenant relationship with his people. There's rules, and then there's stated consequences up front. That's a lot of what's in the book of Deuteronomy. So here's the rules of our covenant relationship. If you abide by them, here's some blessings you can expect. If you break these rules, here's some consequences you can expect. Uh, The Bible calls them curses. 
So this is the way God relates to his people. When God's people start to break the covenant rules, God sends prophets to say, hey, you're breaking the covenant rules. This is what you're doing wrong. This is why these bad things are happening to you or these bad things are going to happen to you. So Isaiah functions to just help God's people understand what in the world is going on, why these bad things are happening. It's because they've broken God's covenant rules. You'll see throughout all the prophetic books really a a one-two punch pattern over and over again. First they explain what they have been doing wrong, and then they explain what's going to happen next. And that what's going to happen next, those consequences, is part of why we tend to think of them as future predictors. But that's not really their main role, predicting the future. I want to read just a little bit of Isaiah, what we're going to look at next week, to give you more of an example of what this sounds like. So we'll start at verse 2 and just read a couple of verses so you get a sense of what Isaiah is going to be saying. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Now, there's probably a lot in there that doesn't immediately make sense. But you see the general picture. You guys have betrayed your relationship with the Lord, and now you're experiencing these consequences. And I, Isaiah, have been sent to you by God to help you understand why this is taking place and what you need to do. That's how prophecy tends to work. Isaiah is a collection of these sorts of messages over a lengthy career. Four kings listed here that Isaiah ministered throughout their reigns. So it's kind of his life work spread out before us here. So that's kind of technically how to deal with prophecy. To put it in another way that maybe be a little easier to digest, is this was God's way of having a father-son chat with his people. Uh, We've probably all here experienced a father-son chat where we have been rebelling in some way, and our dad had to sit us down and say, Son, sweetheart, I love you. But the way you've been behaving is not acceptable. We do not act this way in this family. We don't hit our younger brother. We do our chores like we say we're going to do. We don't steal things. These are, the, these are our rules. This is how we operate. And because you've been not operating this way, here are the consequences. I'm going to have to give you a spanking. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Uh, No screens for the rest of this week. 
You need to stop this behavior. We're not going to put up with it. See, God is a good father. He loves his children. He doesn't just let them go into sinfulness. He sends a prophet, and that's his way of sitting down beside his child on the bed and saying, we need to have a talk. There's about to be consequences. I love you too much to just let this continue. Now, you might have a little bit of resistance here. Beyond just the thought of boring, we read the table of contents this morning. You might also have a level of resistance thinking, okay, I understand that, but this is God having a father-son chat with his ancient people a long, long time ago, and I don't see how that is relevant for me here and now. Well, that's not a bad point, and it leads to the second thing I want to point out about the book of Isaiah. You're kind of right and wrong at the same time. So the first thing it's helpful to understand is that Isaiah is a specific type of book. It's prophecy. The second thing, the only other thing I want to point out this morning, is that it is written to a specific people. It is written to a specific people. You're very sharp to catch that. Let's look at verse 1 again. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So there it's put right in front of us. Yes, this isn't really concerning Doolins Grove Church in 2019 directly. It's first and foremost concerning Judah and Jerusalem way back then during the reigns of these specific kings. So you're right to notice that. You're wrong, however, if you think that makes it irrelevant to you. Because it is absolutely relevant to you. So first, let's think, think about what you're right about, the fact that it is written to a specific people in a specific time in history. We do have to understand some of the history, the context of what was going on here. Um, otherwise, it's like walking in in the middle of a movie and trying to understand what's happening. And then you're that guy that's saying, well, why did she do that? Who's that guy? Why did he kill her? You need to watch the whole movie, and then you won't have to ask me all these questions. We need to very quickly watch the whole movie so that we understand what Isaiah is about. Now, I am terrible at history. My mind doesn't work that way. Is anybody in here just... There's history buffs. Is anybody a history buff in here? They like history. History is great. Anybody in here, history is not so great? Uh, not a big fan? Don't like to enjoy history books? Okay. I'm in that second camp. I really struggle to keep historical stuff straight, even my own history. I can't remember what happened last year. Meredith will say, hey, you remember uh, that guy we met yesterday and blah, blah, blah? No, <laughs> I don't. I struggle with it, but we need to try to get a general sketch of it in our minds. So I'm going to try to take you through a really brief historical sketch to bring you up to speed with Isaiah. I need you all to hang with me. I know this, I know this is tough. It's harder for me than it is. It's more painful for me than it is going to be for you. Okay, I'm going to bring my notes so I don't mess this up. I'm going to try to give you a really quick sketch of the timeline leading up to what we're going to read in Isaiah. So we're going to start at the beginning. What happened in the very beginning? Yeah, creation. God was there before anything else. He is the point of all of history, and he created everything out of nothing. So if it wasn't for God's initiative, nothing would exist at all. So he created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Uh, along the, the pinnacle of his creation was 
man. He created Adam and Eve. He created mankind to know him and worship him and honor him and love him and be close with him. But in order for that relationship to be real, he let man have freedom, free will, to choose whether or not he would love and honor God or go his own way. What did man choose? Chose to go his own way, rebelled against God. That's called sin. We call it the fall. That's when everything got broken, uh, particularly humanity's relationship with God was severed and messed up. So after Adam and Eve uh, sinned, God cast them away from his presence out of the Garden of Eden, and they began to be fruitful and multiply. People filled the earth, and as people filled the earth, sin filled the earth, and it got worse and worse and more and more wicked until God decided to shake the etch-a-sketch, wipe the slate clean, and he picked out one man. You remember what his name was? Noah. He said, okay, Noah, we're going to get a fresh start here. You and your family uh, build this gigantic boat, and I'm going to preserve you guys, but I'm killing everybody else because this is getting out of hand. He does that. Noah and his family survive. Then they are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But once again, uh, though God has been merciful and though Noah was more righteous than everybody else that lived during that time, the disease, the illness of sin continued on. And as man continued to be fruitful and multiply, sin continued to multiply with them. And so God picked out a single man whose name, started with the A, was Abram at that time. And he said, okay, instead of wiping the whole slate clean and killing everybody, Abram, I'm going to make of you a special nation, a special people group. From you, even though you're too old to have children, really, you and your wife, I'm going to bless you with a child. And through your lineage of this, uh, a nation as, as many as there are stars in the sky at night, will come someone who will bless all people groups, all nations. And so he does. He pulls Abraham aside, changes his name to Abraham. Abraham eventually has uh, a son that was the promised son. His name was Isaac. That's right. Very good. Okay, he had Isaac. Uh, I'm really skimming over a lot of history here. Isaac had some children. Do you remember notably Isaac's children? Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was the hairy one that brought his dad the stew. Jacob stole the birthright. You remember that story? Okay, so the, the lineage is flowing here from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Jacob, eventually, God changes his name to Israel Jacob has a bunch of children, including 12 who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Are you guys hanging with me so far? Having a good time? Okay. Okay, so now we've got 12 tribes. This nation is really spreading and getting a little bit larger. Uh, it's really more of a giant family at this point. Um, Jacob's, or Israel's youngest son started to have trouble with his brothers. You remember the youngest son? Well... Joseph is one thing about. Then Benjamin came along. I'm sorry, with the with the fancy coat, and his brothers said, "I'm tired of your highfalutin attitude." Sold him into slavery. Where? Egypt. Okay, so now we're up to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Uh, what God, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And so when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt, God enabled him to rise up in the ranks to where he actually had a lot of authority in Egypt. And he managed to bring this whole family that God had 
chosen from Abraham into Egypt to protect them from a great big famine that was happening out there. So now God's special race, his special nation, Israel, is in Egypt. And they keep growing and growing and growing. They're fruitful and multiplying, getting bigger, until the Egyptian rulers say, wait a minute, these people are so big that if they decide to turn against us, they can overtake us. So they oppress them, they enslave them, they try to keep them weak, they kill firstborn children, try to keep them down. But God picks out one man from this nation of Israel whose name was Moses to lead his people out of Egyptian slavery. Moses does so. They escape Egyptian slavery. They, they wander around the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the promised land. See, way back when God picked out Abram, part of the promise was they would be a nation that was special unto God and that they would dwell in a special land, the promised land. Moses didn't get to go to the promised land, but his successor leader did get to lead the people into the promised land. His name was Joshua. That's right. You guys are awesome. You're better at this than I am. Joshua did lead the people to conquer, it was called Canaan, the promised land, and establish God's special nation in the special land, the promised land. And so initially they were ruled by judges. That's what you read about in the book of Judges. But they looked around at the other nations and said, well, we want kings like they have. And God says, it's probably not going to go great for you, but so be it. And so Israel started to have kings. Okay, I'm getting toward Isaiah. I'm getting really close. You can tell or else I'll be out that door in the hallway pretty soon. So uh, Israel has three kings as a, as a united nation. They have Saul and then David and then which king came after David? Solomon. Wow, we got some scholars here. Solomon is a whole sermon unto himself. He was uh, apparently very wise and very foolish at the same time. He wrote a lot of the Proverbs, but he also intermarried with a lot of the pagan nations around them and brought in a lot of their pagan idolatry into Israel, and it caused all kinds of trouble. And when he died, a series of events took place to split this special nation of Israel right in half, almost like a civil war, to where all of a sudden, where it was a united nation, like God promised, now it's two. It's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. They kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom of this split, torn-up kingdom, but still God's promised people, it's called Judah. The capital was Jerusalem. This southern kingdom is where Isaiah lived and ministered to the kings of the southern kingdom in Judah. Okay, He must have been pretty well-to-do because he had access. He could go straight in and talk to these kings with God's message to him. Okay, I've got one little bit more bit of history, and then I'm done with the history stuff, I promise. Okay, I'll take one more step over here. All right, that was a lot. That was hard work. Okay, Israel is sitting there. It's really not that large of a nation compared to the surrounding nations. One great big surrounding nation threatened to swallow them up. It was called Assyria. We'll talk more about them. Basically, if you were a large nation back then, you needed to swallow up smaller neighboring nations and make them pay you taxes in order for you to continue your lavish lifestyle. And so they were about to, they pretty much swallowed up the northern kingdom and they were coming down toward the southern kingdom. This is when Isaiah is really doing his ministry. It's when Judah is on the verge of being swallowed up 
by neighboring Assyria and then Babylon. Would they be swallowed up? Would they be conquered? Another thing that nations would do if they conquered you, they would impose a lot of heavy taxes to get your money so they could continue their, their kingdom. They would also do population relocation. So they would take like all your best people and just move them to a whole other part of their kingdom. So that way you couldn't organize yourselves and revolt. That's what we call exile. So as we begin Isaiah, as we see him begin his ministry, we're just talking about that southern kingdom, and they are on the verge of getting swallowed up completely, maybe destroyed, like we don't know yet. Okay? So you guys have a bit of the lay of the land historically? Y'all hung with me really well during that. So that's where you're right. It is about those people back then. Now, where you might be wrong is if you think that that's going to be irrelevant to you. And you might feel like you're in high school again sitting in a, a history lecture this morning. It's not irrelevant. And I'll give you two reasons why. Why it is relevant. Okay, the first is what I'll call the younger sibling advantage. Any younger siblings in here? Okay, a couple. I'm a younger sibling. Um, You guys probably know what I'm talking about with the younger sibling advantage. My brother is five years older than me. His name is Aaron. See, I had the advantage of not only learning from my mistakes, but also learning from his mistakes. I'll give you one little example. Um, My brother has a lot of great qualities. Some of you perhaps have met him. He's got some fantastic qualities. One quality he does not have is neatness. He can be sloppy uh, with the way he goes about his life uh, in terms of just the physical objects around him. And I can remember we would eat a lot of ice cream growing up. That's probably why I have a cavity in every single tooth in my head. A lot of fillings. They're not just open cavities. I'm taking care of it. But we would eat a lot of ice cream, and my brother would scoop his ice cream and would always leave little little uh, chunks of ice cream that would become little ice cream puddles on the counter, dripping down the counter, on the floor, somehow like on the handle of the refrigerator, maybe on the ceiling, I can't really remember. And I can remember my dad, he was a stickler about these kinds of things because he had talked to Aaron about this. And if Aaron was in the room eating his ice cream, dad would come in, he wouldn't say anything other than just, Aaron... He would just point at it, and everyone would have to clean it up. If, if my brother had already finished his ice cream and he was across the street at his friend's house, dad would call him back home from his friend's house, and Aaron would walk in, and he would just, and he would have to wipe it, then he could go back to his friend's house. So I observed all this, and I learned, okay, my dad appreciates neatness and cleanliness. And in fact, I don't even think until I prepared this illustration, I realized that might have a big part of why I'm very neat. Um, I made sure if I got ice cream, there were no drops anywhere so that I could secure my position as the good, the favored son. (laughs) Now that's a little uh, light, inconsequential example, but I learned a lot by watching my brother be corrected by my parents. Therefore, I didn't repeat a lot of those same mistakes. I made my own different mistakes. Now we are sort of like Judah's little brother here. Now, granted, there's a much bigger age gap, but in the same way, us reading Isaiah together is like listening at the door to the father-son chat that God had with Judah back then. We are going to learn a lot 
about what our Father values. We're going to learn a lot about what He wants from His people. We're going to learn a lot about what has happened to our brothers who rebelled against that throughout history and how God worked out His holiness and His mercy. And we're going to see how our Father worked out His his justice, you know, things have to be made right, yet also His grace. So we're going to learn a lot about our Father in this process. We're going to learn a lot about what He wants from us in this process. Okay, so that's one reason it's relevant. Another reason it's relevant is, is similar to that, but I told you last week, Isaiah is one of the top three most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. The New Testament writers clearly felt that this was relevant to the events of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't know that we can fully understand Jesus without a lot of what is in Isaiah. So what they knew, we are going to discover as well, that in these ancient pages are all kinds of insights about Jesus Christ and what it means to be a Christian as well. So we're going to come to understand God the Father and what he wants from his people. We're going to come to understand our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what it means to be a Christian in a fallen, broken world as we study these pages. It's going to be really applicable, I promise. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples. They were dealing with the same God that we deal with, and they were dealing with the same struggles we deal with, just in an ancient context. But just in the first chapter, what we're going to look at next week, we're going to see that they dealt with uh, disobedience, Anybody in here ever disobey God in some way? They dealt with empty religion. Has anybody ever dealt with empty religious activities in some way? And they dealt with pride. Anybody ever had an issue with pride? Of course, we're, we're all the same. Though they lived back then and we live now, it's the same. There's nothing new under the sun. So, all right, we did it. You feel prepared? For next week, we know that this is a specific type of book. It's prophecy, and we need to read it as such. We know that it was written to a specific people, and it's going to help us understand the meaning to know that it was written to them first and then secondarily for us. Now, there's one more way we need to prepare ourselves. Because this is prophecy, it is inherently confrontational. That was the whole point of Isaiah's ministry was to confront God's people with their need to turn back to faithfulness to God. And so as we receive it, there will be some, some confrontation between God and us in some way. We will be challenged to forsake any ongoing unrepentant sin that may be in our life. We could see God break through patterns of sin that perhaps have been in our lives as individuals for years or even in, within generations of our family, sin that kind of we inherit from our parents. We may even see God break down patterns of sin that we have as a church just kind of subtly built into our church culture. This is really good, but can be a little uncomfortable. Just like a father addressing an issue with his child, that's good, that's loving, and the child's going to be better off for it, but it, it can be an uncomfortable conversation. We may have some uncomfortable sermons through this, but we can prepare ourselves this week, and this is where we'll land. I want to encourage you, let's ask God to examine our hearts this week 
soften our hearts. Go ahead and begin revealing to us things we need to start to let go of so that we can be submissive to him and his word. Let's expect God to reveal ways he wants us to change and grow throughout this summer. Let's expect God to enable us to grow spiritually, maybe more than we ever have before this summer. Let's expect God to strengthen our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he does all this for us. All right. Thank you, guys. Y'all really hung with me this morning, and I really appreciate it. I am really excited about what's ahead for us in Isaiah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for guiding us to this book at this juncture of our lives. Or would you please search our hearts, reveal to us any sin or any ways that are contrary to your ways that we need to turn away from. Would you please soften our hearts? Would you please make us receptive to your word? And we ask you to help us grow. We want to grow closer to you. We want to grow deeper in our faith in Jesus Christ. We want to grow more bold in our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We want to grow more mature. We want to please you more, honor you more. So we submit ourselves to you for these purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.